Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This is an RNZ podcast. No my fakaronga mai kita altai fenua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round. Great to have your company. I'm Duncan Smith. Today, a Hawke's Bay orchardist has a spring on his step a year after Cyclone Gabrielle. The apple harvest has begun, and despite devastation a year ago, things are looking up. We're heading to the Christchurch Red Zone to find out about an outdoorsy educational programme that's teaching students about growing food and climate change. And later, it may all be champagne and smart hats in some parts of the world, but in New Zealand, polo has a bit of a different vibe. We're on the sidelines of a polo match in central Hawke's Bay to get a taste of the action. But first to a roundup of news from the primary sector this week and joining us from Kirikiriroa Hamilton is Susan Murray. And Susan, primary sector leaders have put climate change as the top concern for farming. They have, and this comes from new research out of Lincoln University, where 280 leaders from agribusiness, government and Māori business were surveyed midway through last year. So yes, climate change, along with extreme weather and water quality, they saw these as the biggest drivers affecting land use in the next decade. The research was headed by Timothy Driver. He says Cyclone Gabriel and other recent weather events really were front of mind because of the impact they had. They've cost an estimated $2 billion. But also, and I guess this is no surprise, the survey highlighted just how important overseas market happenings and events are to agribusinesses. Exports and, and, and market issues in general are really high at the forefront. Consumer preferences in export markets are always really high to the forefront. So I think what this captures is the through line of the thought of the primary sector, that these things are always of concern. Things move around. So, for example, in the previous iteration, COVID-19 was really high in the priorities. That's completely dropped off the radar now. Um, in the current iteration, we are now seeing a proliferation of concerns around geopolitics, conflict, international conflict, food security, and the market effects of geopolitical conflict. And Susan, some pleasing signs for deer farmers with demand for New Zealand venison strong at the moment. It is, and this is resulting in good prices for farmers. AgriHQ senior analyst Mel Crowe says that uh, as the main European chilled venison season is ending, buyers are now on the hunt for next season's stock. And so this should mean that the new season contracts, when they come out later in summer, will be strong. Some early on-farm deer sales suggest that there is some confidence and positivity uh, within this industry. Strong demand for venison from North America has basically counteracted some of the European markets that were perhaps just not as strong as they would have usually have been. That market in general has, has managed to withstand the downside that we've seen in, in other red meat export markets as well, um, and it's allowed those prices 
received at the farm gate to track at a, a much stronger level than what, particularly what we're seeing for lamb. So Mel is mentioning lamb there. Well, there is a slight ray of hope, actually, for lamb producers. Rabobank's Agribusiness Outlook for 2024 came out this week, and in there they were predicting that while economic growth in China is expected to slow, the demand for lamb, it says, would pick up in the second half of the year once China has eaten its way through the inventory that it already has. And the team caught up with senior analyst Emma Higgins. She said that the input costs should also remain stable through the year, but that could change if the tensions in the Middle East escalate. And of course, if that happens, that will have an impact on the bottom line for farmers. Yes, but more than a ray of hope for dairy farmers, with the global dairy trade auction rising for the fifth consecutive time. Pretty good news for them, isn't it? This is the fortnightly auction. The prices that they get there, of course, affect what they get in their pockets. And on Wednesday, yes, those prices popped up again by 4.2%. NZX analyst Christina Alivado says that the sales exceeded expectations. And this was largely thanks to buyers coming in from the Middle East and North Asia. We, of course, are coming into our lower production period, so we'll have less on offer. But she says the hope is that buyers will remain keen through through this coming time and therefore the prices should stay strong. If this continues the trend then we we might be able to keep seeing prices lifting at least towards this side of the year until we start to see how US and European production seasons start to to pick up. NZX analyst Christina Alvarado. The whole milk powder prices, which are the ones that affect New Zealand um, in particular, they rose 3.4%. Butter prices jumped up more than 10%. So I think that's the reverse tally of a slippery slope. Now, what about the rural real estate scene? Is that on a slippery slope? It's pretty quiet. Buyers apparently are either waiting for the right property or for interest rates to come down. The new data from the Real Estate Institute shows that there was a 37% drop in the number of farm sales in the three months to December last year, and that's compared to the same time the year before. And it's down to 241 farm sales over those three months. Here's Institute spokesperson Shane O'Brien drop in farm sales is right across New Zealand and right across most farming sectors, which is not usual. Normally we see one or two sectors dropping off or one or two regions, but this is a nationwide trend occurring at the moment, which tends to suggest that the issues facing buyers are more on a macro level, uh, things such as on-farm inflation, uh, farm product prices and interest rates. Shane O'Brien says the median price for farmland is also down. Over the past year, the price per hectare on dairy farms dropped nearly 7%, down to $41,020 a hectare. And the median price for finishing farms was also down. It was down 9.3% to $39,270 a hectare. Susan, a new pest control programme to control wallabies is off to a good start in the South Island. Which is good news. These Mm. little hoppers, they've spread themselves around a number of regions in New Zealand. Back in December, 10 Bennett's wallabies wearing brightly coloured GPS collars were dropped by helicopter into the Waitaki and Mackenzie districts. Now they're called spy wallabies and that's because they're used as lures to lead the hunters onto other wallabies in an effort to control these populations. We just don't want them around. They compete for grass with the livestock and they eat native seedlings and regenerating native bush. Otago Regional Council's Libby Caldwell says that this is the first surveillance operation and it was successful. 
they have led us to an extra 18 wallaby. So those extra 18 wallaby were destroyed at the time of the hunt. And so we're really happy with the results. Libby Caldwell and the surveillance operation showed that one wallaby travelled 42 kilometres over a couple of weeks. There's another hunt. I know, big distance. That'll be coming up on the 19th of February and they'll hope to keep it going for 11 months to just see how successful the spy wallaby program is. Well, now on the international front, where are things at with the live animal export vessel that's been stuck off the coast of Perth for several weeks? Sounds like a bit of a standoff. The MV Bahija, it's got 15,000 sheep and cattle on board. It left Australia bound for Israel in early January. It was turned back because of ongoing tensions in the Red Sea. It couldn't get through. Last Friday, several hundred cattle were taken from the ship to a quarantine facility. A small number of them have died and those are now under investigation. The exporter wanted to re-export the animals the long way around around Africa, but this week the Australian government said that's not going to happen, they're not to be re-exported. But a farming lobby group in Western Australia says it's likely they will be offloaded and rested for 10 days and then it will have another attempt to re-export them, to apply to re-export them. For now, they're staying on board the ship. There's a heat wave in Perth and it's actually cooler on the ship. Mm. Thank you, Susan. Look, just quickly, Sally, I must just button. Best wishes to a Christchurch vegetable farmer who is vying to be first place in this weekend's Coast to Coast. He grows vegetables in the morning. He's an athlete by the afternoon. Ryan Kisanowski, he's competing in his 17th Coast to Coast, and he hopes that this year he'll be up on the podium. He's in that longest day event where they go for the two, the full 243-kilometre course in one day. Last year he was second, He's also been third, fourth and fifth, so go Ryan. Indeed, and good luck to all the competitors. Country Life, bringing you the sounds and voices of rural New Zealand. It's very close to a year since the Wilson family's apple orchards came under the onslaught of Cyclone Gabriel. Trees were bold like ninepins when logs came crashing through the stop banks near Pukitapu in Hawke's Bay. Silt also drowned many areas, leaving orchardist Leslie Wilson wondering whether the surviving trees could produce. Country Life producer Sally Round has been checking in with Leslie every few months over the past year, and with the cyclone anniversary looming next week, it was time to put in another call. It's our first day of picking today and the fruit is looking amazing, so we are uh, quite lucky with the orchards that were left behind, even though... Much of it was under several metres of water. Um, the trees have survived after a bit of hard work getting all the silt out and uh, the fruit is looking stunning. It's a general theme right across Hawke's Bay and um, yeah, the fruit quality this year is, is uh, well, to use a wine-growing term, it's vintage. What do you put that down to, given all the stress the trees have been under? Yeah, well, a um, little bit of miracle and uh, a little bit of... We've got um, some really good seasonal weather this year. So we've had lots of hot spring days and um, hot summer days and rain at the right time. So, you know, we've got a very good crop. Hawke's Bay's got a good crop. New Zealand's got a good crop. So very good year for apple growing. The industry needed it, that's for sure. We are trying to focus on business as usual, while many of us are still trying to tidy up as well. So, But under the... Under harvest conditions, um, you've just got to put the clean up to one side and um, work on getting that crop in so we've got some cash flow for the coming year. 
And Leslie, let's just talk about the last six months. Last time I spoke to you, you were very pleased with the cleanup. You said you were 18 months ahead of what you thought you'd be. But, yes. uh, that was yep. back in the winter time. So how have things gone since then? The big tidy up was done. So we found the orchard floors again. Um, and then we've had to go through and level the orchards out. And um, some people have gone through and regrassed. Um, there's a lot of orchards that still haven't had the silt taken out um, because the trees have been uh, dying. So that decision was made quite early on. I think Hawke's Bay has lost about 6% of its orchards, um, which doesn't sound much, but we were the, we were the single largest um, growing area in New Zealand. So whether that land gets put back into orchards or not, I don't know, but um, we certainly uh, have a full replanting program sorted for the next three or four years. So out of our 40 hectares, we lost around about 12. And um, the exciting thing with that is that it will all be put into uh, new and exciting varieties and the new uh, intensive growing systems. So that's, that's a really big positive, um, not only for us, but for the industry. And were you able to access any of the loans that you were looking at last time I spoke? Uh, we're still working through that. Because it's going to be a huge cost for you. Oh, it is going to be a huge cost. So, um, yeah, we're still working through securing some of those. Um, I think it'll it'll work out. And that, en that enables us to get the job done quickly, as in the re replanting done quickly, um, so we can get that land back up and running and producing. At the moment, we're still securing rootstocks and having them budded up with the variety, so we've got to find budwood, and it's just an ongoing process, but hopefully we'll start our planting program uh, this winter. It'll yeah. only be a small amount because we're having trouble accessing trees, but uh, we've got orders in for the next two or three years, so hopefully in three years' time in winter we'll be fully replanted. I guess with all the damage that's been caused and other people wanting to replant, there will be a shortage of rootstock. Is that the case? Oh, there is a bit of a shortage of, of um, apple trees, yes. Um, there wasn't a lot of replanting going on prior to this because a lot of people had already done it over COVID. So what had happened was that growers realised that they couldn't get the fruit off the trees because we didn't have the labour. Um, shipping was all over the place, so made a decision to take out uh, some of those non-performing varieties. Um, and then the, the replanting programme had all but stop, stopped. And so the nurseries weren't producing many trees. And then, of course, we, we had the cyclone and yeah, they're having to find new and exciting ways of doing that for us. So, Let's have a chat about your personal circumstances with the rebuild and so on. Six months ago, you were still waiting on insurance to get on with rebuilding the two properties. One was red zoned. What's happened since then? Managed to get insurance through for the red zone property and for the house we were living in. So um, we've started rebuilding the house we were living in, which is a journey of discovery because it's an old villa and, you know, you pull up a floorboard and you find new and exciting things. Um, and we're still um, working with the insurance company. It's, it's our fault, not theirs, that it's taking so long um, on the small cottage that we're living in at the at the present and um, some other accommodation on another block. So um, 
Yeah, we, we got there in the end, but it was a bit of a fight. And how has it been living in those circumstances over the winter months and then coming into Christmas? <laughs> it's interesting. Um, you know, we're certainly not as bad off as some people who are still in caravans. Um, at least we've got sort of four solid walls um, and it's not, not the first time we've lived like that, but um, certainly when you see the lovely house right next door, you think, well, I can't wait to be back in there. But uh, yeah, well, so at the moment I'm just uh, making all the decisions for wall colours and bench tops and carpets and curtains and all that sort of stuff. And um, I think I might be doing it a little bit hickledy-pickledy. So when we get to the end of the season and it's time to move into the villa again, which I hope will be four to six months away, um, I might be surprised at what I chose. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, the community, how have they coped? I mean, how was Christmas and how will they be commemorating the, the day of the cyclone? Well, everybody sort of, well, the people I've spoken to, and, and me included, are, are really wanting to ignore the day. Um, I think it's a little bit too close. However, the local Pukitapu pub is putting on a community dinner. So, um I actually can't think of another place I'd rather be on that day, so I think we'll go down there and uh, kick this last year into touch, so that'll be great. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Leslie, and and hear the progress you've made, so thank you so much for sharing everything with us. There's still a long way to go, but I guess um, for us, and I can't speak to everybody, um, we're trying to switch from living in that moment to looking forward and... um, we are putting big plans in place for replanting and tidying the place up and um, you know, not working in that environment of stress all the time, um, just working with some good planning and some intent. So yeah, we're looking forward to that after the season's finished, sitting down and having a very big planning session. That was Leslie Wilson speaking to me from her orchard at Pukitapu in Hawke's Bay. Now we're heading to Christchurch, where 600 hectares of green space runs from the city to the coast along the lower Otakaro Avon River. This red zone is mostly cleared residential areas as a result of the Christchurch earthquakes. The Climate Action Campus has locked in some of that land for educational purposes. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is at the site with Sandy Bobkova. I am the head horticulturalist, so I'm just in charge of all the gardens and everything that's edible and, yeah. It's raining quite hard. This must be a blessing for you. It is a blessing. I will not dare complain about the rain. It's been a very dry summer. Um, it's been a lot, of, a lot of sprinkler work going on over the Christmas holidays. <laughs> now, can you tell me what happens here? So lots of different education programmes, mainly centred around climate action, so things like regenerative horticulture and organics and solar and all that good stuff. And you're based on what was the Avonside Girls High School? Yes, the original Avonside Girls High School. So they were still here after the earthquakes. Um, They had several damaged buildings. Um, They bought the prefabs in and then once their school was built they went to their new site and then Linwood came in here while their school was getting rebuilt and then we finally got to move in once they went to their new site. And there are only a few prefabs left? Yeah, yeah, all ones that we're using which is good Um, and yeah all the big old buildings are all as of last week gone, yeah, only very recently they cleared the last one. So how much land 
do you manage here? About 10 hectares, give or take. That's yep. a lot. It is a lot. And we've got four hectares in the red zone, which was all housing. Um, we are surrounded by red zone, so you do feel out of the city when, when yes. you come out here. Who comes here? So we've got about 23 different schools, and that's ranging right from early childhood all the way up to tertiary. Many local schools and a few that are a little bit further away. Um, and what do they do when they get here? Um, so they all do slightly different things, so we try to be quite flexible with the programs, but each school will sort of select a few different things they want to do. Some just come to do gardening and harvest food and cook some food. Others might do all sorts of stuff like scavenger hunts and foraging and sewing, cooking. Mm. Yeah. How did it all start? Well, it all started via Vicky Buck. So, um, who was the mayor? Who used to be the mayor of Christchurch Ototahi? Yes, for 10 years, I think. So, she saw a need for, um, she saw a lot of climate angst amongst school children, and she saw a need to sort of move it away from the angst and more about doing something positive and making change as opposed to just worrying about what was wrong. And she pinpointed this huge area of abandoned land as a place where people could start growing and learning. Yeah, that's right, yeah. It was always going to be empty eventually and there was no-one else sort of wanting to step in and, and take over the school. So um, it was just a blessing out of the earthquakes, really. Um, yes. Same with the red zone, you know. Something horrible, but some good stuff has come out of it. Now, we are standing on the porch of one of the uh, prefabs and in front of us is a chicken enclosure. You don't just grow things, you've got birds and insects. And insects, yeah, plenty. Not all, not all good insects, but <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, we've got beehives um, out in the red zone so the kids can, can learn about bees. And uh, we're trying to encourage lots of good insects that help manage some of the pests that we have in the garden. So we've got lots of plants to bring in, like parasitic wasps and things that help keep caterpillars and aphids in, under control and yeah. yeah. Where does the funding come from to run this campus because there are several people who are employed? Yes, um, so we get some funding from the Ministry of Education because we are a school and that covers some of our teaching staff and general maintenance of the land and then we have also been very grateful to have a lot of financial help from Rata Trust and also the Christchurch City Council and the Organics College or BHU have been really helpful and just lots of good people that want to, you know, come and help out and not necessarily be paid for their time, which is always really nice. What's your background? How did you end up here? Um, really randomly, actually. <laughs> um, so I live pretty close by, just down the road, and I was running a nursery out of my backyard selling tomato plants and veggies and things like that and regularly walked the red zone and I saw the tunnel houses popping up and then I saw Vicky and I asked if they wanted some tomato plants to put in the garden and bought some down the next day and pretty much never left. For people listening who aren't familiar with this larger red zone area, how would you describe it? Almost apocalyptic. It's, it's interesting because, it's, um, you know, you can see where the houses were and the empty streets and the overgrown driveways and it's beautiful but there's a little bit of an eerie feeling about it because, you know, those were people's homes and you can see where the gardens were, you know, outlining each property and, and things like that. So mm. we're right in the centre of it, basically. Well, the rain's just about stopped, so shall we have a wander around? Yeah, let's, let's go. 
Don't need that umbrella anymore, hopefully. We are standing in the middle of a market garden. Can you tell me what uh, sort of things you grow here? Well, this time of year we've got lots of tomatoes going and lots of pumpkins and zucchini, a bit of greens, sweet corn, which is always a, you know, the stuff inside the school is the, the precious things that the kids are most excited about, like, yeah, like the tomatoes and the sweet corn. And this year we've got some uh, watermelons growing outside. It's a first outdoor test of watermelons. Mm. What do you do with all this food? Do you sell it? Uh, we do not sell it. A percentage of it goes home with the kids that are working. So a lot of the schools that come here, if they're coming regularly, they'll have their own plot. They will design their garden and choose what to sow and then plant it out and then they get to harvest it and either cook it in the kitchen or take it home to mum and dad. Mm. Um, the rest of it, uh, we have a, a pantry out in the red zone and we fill that up whenever we can and um, the community comes and gets some lovely fresh organic veg. Are you involved in any collaborative initiatives or research projects? Yes, um, so we've got Landcare Research doing like a case study on us and we are also looking at doing some different trials with tree crops, so trialling some rare fruits that you don't often see here and also a few organic pest and fungus control tests as well, so hopefully that will get underway this year. And we've got this year the um, Hagley Refugees Group coming, um, so that's adults, and they're obviously from a variety of different countries and ethnic backgrounds, and I love the idea of them being able to have their own little plots with things that are traditional for them and I'm sure I'll learn stuff from them and I'll hopefully be able to teach them a few things and yes how exciting yeah, it is it is exciting well let's keep going show me some some other areas that you are developing just through here now some of the prefab buildings have some interesting artworks on them yes yeah, so that's another collaboration we've got going with the Christchurch City Council um, so they have a graffiti program where they encourage graffiti artists in a more legal direction and uh, we're basically just giving them a huge canvas to work with and the goal is eventually it will be like a maze, an art maze through the school with all different art from a very wide variety of people. So this is our nursery through here. We are coming up to your nursery which has taken over the netball courts. Yes, yeah, we're... Um, we're not a sports school, so we <laughs> converted it into a nursery and got some funding for the tunnels and the irrigation and this is where we do all the propagation and seed starting and all that kind of stuff. Mm, mm. What about the sports fields? Do you have access to them? Yes, um, so the sports field's further down the back there and that will go to the BHU so they can make their own plot as well and then we've also got plans to do a whole heap of grapes down there. Um, we've connected with another local who's been over the last year collecting red zone grapes and saving them and also some from an abandoned vineyard, an old vineyard from somewhere around the hills. He's collected up all these different varieties and he's bringing them down and we're going to just do a mini vineyard I guess, yeah. It sounds like the campus here is going to grow and grow. I mean, I uh, hope so, yeah. You're not restricted by space no we're not no the biggest restriction is funding 
So as long as the funding stays, we will not be going anywhere. Yes. You are also planning to build a solar farm on that empty area we can see beyond yeah. the cherry trees where one of the main buildings used to stand. Yes, yeah. So the last thing to go was the hall, the old hall gymnasium and the drama department, which were all oldish buildings and, and badly earthquake damaged. Um, because the buildings were there, unfortunately the land's contaminated, so we can't grow food on it. So now we have this enormous cleared space, which hopefully in the near future will become a solar farm and then potentially do wildflowers underneath it because they'll be raised off the ground. So something that will bring in more bees and birds and all that good stuff. Yeah. And I guess because this land will not be developed, you don't have that worry about having to move on. No, that's right. Um, the red zone land that we lease is is red, um, so there's no no way that they can build on it. Uh, the the potential for a tiny house village is slightly different because it's movable small homes, um, but yeah, nothing large scale. Um, a tiny house village to home people in in need. Yes, yeah. So emergency housing and things like that, um, temporary housing for people in between, and yeah. And I guess the solar farm could supply the electricity for that uh, village. Yes, that's right, and potentially supply them with some food yes. at the same time. We have come into the red zone and this is where one of the many houses used to be and uh, you've got several um, tunnel houses here. Yes, yeah, um, predominantly hot loving plants this time of year so things that wouldn't necessarily grow very good outside or you know just need a bit more shelter so eggplants and more watermelons and uh, passion fruit capsicum, cucumbers, yes. all that kind of stuff. It looks like you've had a fresh load of compost delivered. Yes, that's another one of our lovely supporters. Canterbury Landscaping Supplies uh, kindly donate a truckload of compost to us each month if we need it. Um, the soil here is not fantastic um, after many years of having houses and driveways on it. So, yeah... It's, it's, we, we build up basically, we're not digging into the clay or anything like that, we're layering cardboard down and then compost on top and then when we can mulching where we can and yeah. You put quite a bit of it around all these trees. Yeah, that was yesterday's um, mission was to try and top up some of the trees and give them a good feed for the, the end of the season. Wonderful. Oh, well, it's all go here. It is, it is. And most of these trees, well, a lot of these trees have been um, donated via the Christchurch Community Gardens Association. Some of them have also been grown by the kids as well. So ate the apples, planted the seeds, and then planted them out here once they were big enough. And, yeah. What are the future goals for the Climate Action Campus? Um, I guess just to keep expanding and um, expanding our programs, like like with the solar farm and things like that. It's an opportunity to, to be teaching that kind of stuff to kids. Um, and for me personally, just getting kids to know how to grow their own food and know what to do with it, and, you know, it's such a life skill to have that I think has been sort of lost between generations, um, and I want to take that back. That was Sandy Bobkova, head horticulturalist at the Climate Action Campus on the former grounds of Avonside Girls High School, the Christchurch Red Zone. And there's some photos of the campus on the Country Life webpage. 
This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. Summer at a sports ground in Hawke's Bay means the thud of hooves and the knock of mallets under the hot summer sun. Polo is an action-packed sport which shows off the power and speed of the ponies and general courage of the riders swinging their mallets mid-gallop. Maggie Tweedy made her way to the Wanstead Polo Club, 20 kilometres from Waipakaro, one Sunday afternoon. It's a hot summer's day in central Hawke's Bay, but there's plenty of feed on the rolling hills for grazing sheep as I wind down the hot Tarsiel Road to the Wanstead Polo Club. Known as the second largest club in the country, the grounds are home to some of New Zealand's most experienced players. It's the weekend of the Barrett Dearden Memorial Cup, the club's major annual home game tournament. I've arrived in between chuckers in time to catch rider Pete Hislop, who has played the sport for 10 years. I was lucky enough to be riding ever since I was a kid, um, but I had a friend who was an arborist who was doing some work on a tree one day, and I said, what do you do in your spare time? And he said, I play polo at Birchley, which is a local club which offers beginners to uh, have a go. So that's what I did. I went down there and uh, 10 years ago and fell in love with it. It's quite an addictive thing. It would have been quite cool getting into it because it's full of adrenaline. It's pretty brutal out there on the field. Look, it's, it is a cool sport. It allows you to play, I don't know, like a warrior. Uh, I started when I was 50, when you're still 50, and you know, you, it's pretty hard to play full contact rugby at that, at that age, but you can certainly play polo. Does it require a lot of flexibility, though? Because I imagine it's, it's pretty challenging, like seeing you go all the way down to the ground with the mallet and really swing it. Yeah, look, I mean, I suppose it's like a, I don't know, like a lot of those sports, it, timing's is key. So you don't have to be super strong, but timing is, is a huge part of it in terms of hitting the ball, you know. You watch the good guys and they're amazing, their timing is just incredible and they pick it up off the ground, the ball can be bouncing and their hand-eye is amazing. So for people who are young, they take to it a whole lot quicker than people who are older. And what's the youngest person out in the field today? Oh, there would have been Ross Ainsley's son, what would he be, 10, maybe 11 years of age? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you get them started at that young age and um, and they go on with it and the world's their oyster. And you've gotten your daughter Julia into it as well. Yeah, well, it's lots of fun. I mean, it's a, it's a family sport as much as anything else. So it's great. It's something that dad and, and daughter can do together, mm. which I never imagined, to be fair, 10 years ago. And she's ridden horses since she was a, a little nipper. Great family sport, so I'm only sorry that my, my son never liked riding horses. <laughs> uh, and in terms of the game, like, how does it actually work? How long did it take you to figure it out? Oh, look, I'm still figuring it out. I know that probably sounds silly, but, um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm getting better every year. Those first two or three years are a bit of a blur. I mean, a big part of playing polo is having, you know, which I found out reasonably early in the piece, is, you know, if you've got good horses, then they can, you know, they help out so much um, because playing polo is not just about hitting the ball, it's a team sport. There's riding off and sticking and, you know, there's so many tactics. Um, so luckily it's not all about hitting the ball because if it was, I probably would have given up. <laughs> Today here at the Wanstead Polo Club, it seems that all the teams that are playing are mixed as well. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I think that uh, there's probably 50%, probably maybe even more, 50% of polo players are females. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, we play heaps of mixed-sex teams. It was interesting today, so the team I was playing in had a father and son in it, and on the opposition was his daughter. So, yeah, lots of... I mean, it's, it's great. It's really healthy, and um, we enjoy it. And, I mean, the girls are great. They're good. Tell me what kind of team you play in, because it seems like it was a hell of a lot faster 
to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, look, look there's lots of different goal rating in, in terms of the tournament. So we were playing in the sixth goal, which was, uh, you could call it the high goal. I mean, I mean, you know, high goal overseas is, is 24, or, you know, you go to Argentina and it's, and it's 40 goal, um, and you get up to the up to the top there but so today at Wanstead um, we had two grades and it was six goal and naught goal and, and of course as you as you get further up the up the goal rating it, it gets faster and faster. And how hard is it to move up to a different goal rating? Oh I mean. <laughs> it's like a combination effect isn't yeah, it? Yeah I mean look it's not easy I mean um, you know like the highest you can get to in the world is a 10 goaler and most of them are Argentinians and there might be eight to ten of those in the world today here at Wanstead I think we had a five goaler and a four goaler I'm a naught goaler um start out at minus one will I get any better probably not but um I, I'm still you know you get the horses and that and you get asked to play and you still get the chance to play you get the opportunity to uh to play at a sort of high level and it's lots of fun making sure that you get to that high level is it about the amount of horses that you have how fit they are how much you can practice is it down to resources oh look I mean I mean both I mean in, in terms of my age it's probably more about resources and talent you know it's, it's certainly it's a mixture of both but horses are a huge part of it you know you can put uh, a, a pretty handy player on so-so horses and they'll struggle a bit but um you know horses are a huge part of it I park up underneath a gazebo that says Hawke's Bay Polo Club. Pete's wife Bridget Hislop has set it up on the sideline with her friend Maria Apatu. Underneath are camping chairs and chicken sandwiches that Bridget has generously made for all the spectators. Just as I'm about to sit down and watch, the players canter off the field to change ponies and regroup before the next chucker, the seven-minute period of play during the polo game. Maria tells me it's time for all those watching to rush out onto the field and stomp the divots. It's a bit of a tradition for polo spectators. Which is literally stomping the grass back down for the next game so the field is not so bumpy for the players. So we're literally putting our feet yep. in the gaps in the field. Stomping down the grass. Is that for the horses or for the ball? Both. So if a horse was to sort of run over one of these and get their foot in a hole, they can easily be quite dangerous, you know, they can either slip over or trip over. Worst case scenario, break a leg, but you'd hope not. So you're literally just putting it back, it helps with the play, it helps with the ball running, and it helps for the horses. Horse safety is the main priority. And so you've done this how many times today? Between every game, but yesterday when it rained, we did it between every chucker. Amazing. Yeah. So we don't have to do it that much today because it's such a beautiful no, day. No, it'll be probably before this game and then they'll play and then we'll probably do it again before the last game. And how many people are out on the field today? Oh, I'd say we're looking at around 30, 40 people. Stomping the divots. Stomping the divots. <laughs> so this is not only a thing in New Zealand, it's pretty No, no, worldwide. It is a cultural thing, and in um, England when you go, and you might go to Guards Polo, which is the Queen's by Windsor, you will do this. You'll have hundreds of people out here with their champagne flutes and their sun hats and their dresses stomping divots. It's back to the sidelines for me amongst the other horses, which are tacked up under the shady trees, awaiting their turn at a chucker. Taking them up is Woody, Porongho local, horse trainer and polo player, Wirihana Kururangi. Uh, yes, yep, we have our own stallion and 
a handful of mares that we breed out of and keep getting foals out of them and they get turned into polo horses. Uh, or we just pick up a few off the track that they're not, you know, they're not going to cut the track. From the racetrack? From the racetrack, yes. Okay, so those would usually be thoroughbreds? Yes, yes, they're all thoroughbreds, so we just take them from the track that, and to school them up and train them up for polo. And how do you train them up for polo? What's the difference? Because they obviously have to have that speed. You've got to have the speed, but you've got to also got to try and keep their head because you can tend to cook a, a thoroughbred pretty quick. Their heads are, well, they're real energetic horses, they're fidgety, you know, so it's just trying to calm them down and make them just settle down, really. And how long does it usually take to convert one from the racetrack to actually working as a polo pony or a horse? Take anywhere from about four months to a year or so. Or could take a couple of years, it just depends on the horse, really. Every horse is different. So how many have you got at the moment that you're working on? Uh, we have 17 on the yard at the moment. They were working eight young ones and the rest are all good made playing horses. So yeah. who are you working with? Uh, I work with the Kurus from Mopiongo Hills in Porangahau. So they've yeah. been a whānau here for many years, right? Yeah, many years. Yeah. Did you grow up here? Uh, no, I grew up on the east coast, up in Tokomaru Bay. Oh, but so you might have been riding bareback as, yeah, as a kid. Yep, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Heaps of little kids hooning around yeah, bareback on yeah, Tokomaru Bay us. on the beach, right? Yep, that yeah. That's how we grew up riding. So you kind of had that fearless element. Yeah, well, you were comfortable around yeah, horses? Yeah, comfortable around horses. Growing up with them from a young age, right from, well, I was probably riding horses before I could walk. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about your love for horses and, and why you feel so comfortable around them. Oh, just been with them my whole life. Once you start learning how to understand them and stuff, it, oh, they're, just, they're amazing animals, eh? they're intelligent, they do whatever you want them to do and they'll put their life on the line for you out there and stuff like that. So. They're loyal, eh? Yeah, real loyal. And the Wanstead Polo Club, there are so many cars parked here today, yes, heaps yeah. of trucks, a whole lot of horses. It's clearly um, a really big part of the community. Wanstead Polo Club, you know, it's been around here for years and they've always had plenty of people come down and watch and there's always plenty of people want to come out here and support it because oh, it's just a fun tournament to be at. I guess there's like a, an idea that playing polo is a pretentious sport. Yeah, it is, can be posh, it just depends where you, where you are. It's not as posh in here in New Zealand. We, yeah. we just do it the same way as rugged, really. Yeah. <laughs> as any other sport. Yeah, just yeah. get into it, eh? Yeah. As long as the horses are all good and sound and they're turned out all right, it's the main thing. Wirihana Kururangi and his younger cousin spent a season in England. It's a rite of passage for New Zealanders who fall in love with polo, like Julia Hislop, who's busy cleaning up the horse track. Uh, my dad got into it, and then I thought it looked fun, so I gave it a go, and here I am. It's pretty addictive. How long have you been doing it for? Two and a half years, probably, and then before that, grooming for five years. But it's also exercising them during the week, tacking them up for the games, untacking them, hosing them, feeding them, just looking after them. A horse's caregiver. So you become really attached to them? Oh, yeah. How many are you often looking after at one time as a groom? Well, we have 12 polo ponies, but we have a lovely groom, Ellie, and then myself, I help her, but she does pretty much 12 on her own a lot of the time, which is, it is a full-time job. You did a lot of work overseas, didn't you? Yes, two years in the UK, grooming over there. And whereabouts did you work? 
in the UK. Um, just out of London in Ascot at Guards Polo Club. That's quite a posh place, isn't it? It is a very posh place compared to New Zealand polo. <laughs> There's a difference. And how did you make that link to go to the UK and start working as a groom? I met a English groom who'd come over here for our summer season and she knew someone over in the UK who needed a groom for the season coming up and I had just finished uni and I thought that sounded like a bit of fun so she hooked me up. Shall we go and have a look at the horses? Yes, let's. Okay. Okay. They look more pony in stature. Yeah, well they are. They're called polo ponies because they are, they're smaller. So here we have Flick. She's one of mine. She's a good girl. I can see you smiling when you're talking about her. Yeah, I love her. She's special. I love them all. What yeah. makes her special on the field? Uh, well, she's quite a big girl, so she's strong in a straight line fast. Mm -hmm. Probably turning corners is maybe one of her weaker points, but that's okay. She's a galloper. Not everyone can be perfect. And how did you get her? Was she a retired racehorse? No, she is probably not your typical polo type for a polo pony. Most polo ponies are more like leaner. She's quite chunky, but it's good to be unconventional sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> she's from uh, Gisborne, up the coast. She's a bit of a bush pony, which you don't find many of those in polo. So she's actually one of a kind. And that's why she's maybe your favourite. Well, she's probably not my favourite, but she's up there. Well, introduce me to your favourite then. Um, okay, my favourite, we're going to have to go around the corner. Okay. Here he is. His name is Chaos, and it's ironic because he's the most unchaotic horse in the world. I just love He's him. cool, calm and collected. He's so cool, calm and collected. He's like an absolute gentleman. He's absolutely he is, shining. He's he, a bay horse. Yep. He's a bay horse. He's every groom's dream horse to look after. He doesn't muck around, he's not upsetting the other horses, he just goes about his business and he does it very well. Me and my dad both spend a lot of time fighting over who gets to ride him, <laughs> because he's pretty good, he's pretty special. You initially started out hunting, what surprised you about doing this sport comparatively, like were there any things that kind of... Um, well I guess polo's the only equestrian sport that you can play on a team, everything else is individual, whereas you're out there with you and three others and you actually get a chance to work as a team and use other players and back each other up and stuff like that, which is fun. There's a lot of passion, though. A lot of passion. Yeah, people, they leave their heart and soul on the field, and a few swear words often. Across the paddock is the Wanstead Polo Clubhouse, where spectators are packed into rows of seats, eagerly watching the match from the sidelines. It's a family affair with prams and kids watching too. Inside the scorekeeper's box is Robbie Hunter, a former junior All Black, and it turns out a bit of a local legend. People tell me he made headlines when he dusted off his rugby boots and completed an entire season of rugby at the age of 60. Now in his 70s, he enjoys commentating over the loudspeaker. Ali Dalton is from Kent, just outside of London. But the British groom has spent her fair share of time down at the Wanstead Polo Club. She's been busy all day working in the hot sun, cleaning tack and readying the ponies for play. So I've always been horsey, I've always ridden, and when I was probably 16 or 17, I got working on a polo cross yard um, for a guy who plays quite high level polo cross. And then from there, it, they're quite similar sports. When I went to uni, I wanted to carry on 
and I got into polo grooming a little bit over there and also playing a bit for the uni polo cross team and it just went from there. <laughs> in terms of the UK and New Zealand, how culturally do we differ in the sport? In the UK, it's definitely, it's a professional sport. It's a lot more intense and there's more of it. So the season runs from sort of late April time to late September, whereas here is much more condensed and it's only weekends. So it'll be like a three-day tournament. In the UK, typically you wouldn't play polo on a Monday, but every other day there's polo on all throughout the country. Wow. And yeah. why not Monday? Is Monday rest day? Monday is rest day for ponies, grooms, staff, everyone else. But I'd say in the past few years, it hasn't, like, it just plays on a Monday. So what do you enjoy about your job? I think definitely the horses. It's just very rewarding when you see them going well especially for I groom for three people so I groom for Pete Scott Jolly and also Julia and Julia gives me a hand with the horses so seeing how the horses go their individual horses go for each of them as the season progresses is just really rewarding and when you spend so long getting them ready and you know making them look perfect and especially if they win a pony prize or if you win a groom prize that I think the most important thing is seeing them coming back healthy sound happy and yeah that's all you because can you work these horses really hard don't you yeah You're exercising them every day yes uh, in order for it to be safe out there on the track because it's it's brutal mm -hmm. yeah and it's kind of you know we put so much effort into exercising them and keeping them fit and they'll only play say one chucker most of them so there's all that preparation and they have to shine in seven and a half minutes which a lot of them do As a large mower smooths out the pitch in between chuckers, Andy Barrett tells me the immaculate five hectare paddock is actually grazed by sheep during the off-season. Andy and his wife own Lake Station, which has been home to Wansey Polo Club since 1958. Andy is buzzing. I catch him at a busy time as he's trying to organise a half-time race, which he says has never been done before. He's calling it the race of the season between Woody and his pony, John Resmer in an old Mitsubishi Mirage, Joe Twig in a Ford Escort, and Killian Ainsley on his e-cycle. The crowd of spectators hurry onto the pitch to watch the race, which Woody wins by a mile. It's clear the local community are getting behind it too. This is real, this is grassroots. Um, you know, it's country, there's not too many venues like this. In New Zealand, you know, you've, you've, um, you know, looking around, it's just green paddocks and clubhouses, and there's not a not a township for half an hour from here, 20 minutes from here. You have a bit of a shindig on Saturday night, and you come out and play your your finals on Sunday. Some with a headache, some not. So, no, it's wonderful. Pete Hislop, among some of the players and supporters of the Wanstead Polo Club, and that story was produced by Maggie Tweedy. If you head to our webpage, you'll find photos of Maggie's story and more information on the other stories you've heard today and photos. The address is rnz.co.nz slash countrylife. And don't forget, you can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast and you can find it on any podcast platform. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. Akite Ano.
Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.